0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by RASK Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the RASK Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of the Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the Rask Group's Financial Services Guide on the Rask Finance website. Claude Walker is an Australian small company investor who attempts to unearth the best opportunities at the smaller end of the ASX. Claude and I first met when he became an investment analyst for The Motley Fool Australia, and we have stayed in contact ever since. As you'll hear throughout this discussion, Claude seeks out companies which have a positive social and environmental impact and avoids those which have the opposite effect. Claude is a very smart, passionate and transparent investor, which is why I could have spent hours talking to him. Speaking of, I always do my best to be 100% transparent with you, by acknowledging how I know guests on the show. In the interest of complete disclosure, please pay careful attention to our opening discussion. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Claude Walker of Ethical Equities. Okay, Claude, thanks for jo- joining me on the show, mate. Ah, oh, it's my pleasure. Um, this is something that I've been meaning to do for a while because uh, we know each other, uh, we work together, and uh, even today we have a connection uh, through Andrew Strawman, who's been on the show before. And I
1: keep on asking to invest in RAS Group.
0: Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And um, that conversation is ongoing. So, the purpose of saying all this is just to be 100% transparent. We know each other personally and I guess professionally. Um, So, uh, if anything changes in the future, it may and we may not have a chance to say that um, our business relationship or some sort of relationship that we have between the RAS Group and ethical equities or whatever um, something may develop in the future so just to be 100% transparent I want to hit that straight out of the gate but like I said mate thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, it's uh, great to be here.
0: Lots to talk about. You, um, you um, have experience with podcasts, you've done the TV thing a few times so people probably know you especially in the f- uh, financial Twitter universe or FinTwit universe you're almost of a celebrity down under.
1: No I wouldn't say that but uh, as one of the wise monkeys I've definitely uh, caught some attention. <laughs>
0: No, no, that, you know, with the, um, the time at The Motley Fool, people would know you from there. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about here. As you know, we start with your upbringing, how you came to be involved in finance and investing, where that spark went off for you. So, why don't we kick things off with me asking, was finance part of your childhood? Were, were you influenced by any mentors from a young age or anything of that sort?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I guess the answer is no. Uh, my dad denies this now, but he actually... Hmm. Uh, told me that I could be anything I want except an investment banker. Oh. Uh, I grew up in uh, a family with separated parents, one a teacher, the other a barrister. Uh, a lot of my, my childhood was listening to about how the law worked and the coming and goings in court. Hmm. So, actually, as a child, I was quite interested in the law and, uh, indeed, initially I uh, thought I would be a lawyer and I studied arts law as a result. Hmm. Um so prior to actually leaving school, stocks weren't really on my radar that much.
0: Okay. Did you study finance or economics or anything like that at school?
1: No. No. So my favorite subject at school was physics. Physics? I did physics and chemistry, although I wasn't that much of a fan of maths. Uh, oh. It was mostly the science. And so one of my regrets is that I actually didn't follow that passion at university hmm. uh, rather than um, just sort of trying to sort of follow in my father's footsteps and be a lawyer.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you've. You grew up here in Sydney, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And then you go to Canberra to study at ANU, is that right?
1: Yeah, so the best move I did make at that age was to leave Sydney and mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, thank my lucky stars I did that. Uh, ANU was a great place to go to university and that's where I I started to discover the things that I really was interested in and that had also a lot of fun, which was one of the biggest mm-hmm. value... Uh, factors that I got out of university, given I didn't end up using my arts law degree very much.
0: Hmm. But you got first class honors, so you must have been pretty good at it.
1: Yeah. So, all towards the end, I actually yeah. let my investing uh, f- uh, fall into neglect because I was so focused on getting first class honors. By that stage, I'd realized that I wasn't actually, well, there was a good chance I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Hmm. So, I felt like getting that sort of little good mark was probably the main value of the degree.
0: Okay. And, yeah, because like having known you for a few years, when... I, we just intru- we were just introduced to each other, and we just talked about investing. And then I look at your CV or your LinkedIn profile, and it says first class honours from A and U. I was thinking, Jesus, I didn't know that. So it's kind of like people in your position at that time probably would have been able to go to a pretty high profile law firm or something of that nature, right?
1: Yeah. So one of the confusing factors for me uh, about the law was because my dad's quite a successful barrister. I kind of had the nepotism route open to me in the law, mm-hmm. uh, and. Without that, I'm sure it would have been a much harder journey. But I guess by that stage, the point was that it was clear to me I didn't really want to be a barrister because barristers have to uh, represent anyone mm-hmm. and it didn't fill me with joy uh, to think of going into court representing coal companies or cigarette companies. Even though I understand there's a important you know, use for that in our justice system, mm-hmm. it's not something that I wanted to get up and do every day.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Because you, you're... The, the, I suppose the majors of your, your law or the streams that you chose were uh, environmental, uh, what were the other ones?
1: Yeah, so renewable energy law was really the, the focus yeah. of my th- honours thesis mm-hmm. and that was uh, me trying to bend the legal degree to something that I was passionate about. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, my first job out of university was working for a solar company. Oh, right. So I was, I and still am, very much in favour of uh, humans building renewable energy.
0: Okay. Cool. And we'll get to more of that environmental and ethics and all the rest of it in just a moment. But uh, we've talked previously about how you came to want to become an investor, I guess. And I think it's quite an interesting story. So, I'll just throw it over to you and say, how did you decide? How, what was that turning point, that catalyst that triggered you on a path to being a full-time investor?
1: Yeah, right. So, this is a good question. And not many people know this story, actually. It happened in the first year of university at the end of that year I decided that with my girlfriend at the time and my best mate, we would go uh, on this big trip to South America. Okay. So, the minute university finished, essentially, we off I flew to mm-hmm. Bolivia where I stayed with the Spanish family for about a month sort of to get my Spanish up to scratch. Right. And then from there, my um, friends met me and we travelled through South America all the way to the coast in Peru. Then from the coast we took a backroots journey all the way through the mountains um, and we're talking you know riding in, into town and the mayor comes to meet us and we're, <laughs> we're staying at the mayor's house because there's no sort of proper hotel or anything like that it was a really exciting experience and it really filled me with an enhanced appreciation of uh, nature mm-hmm. and I was filled with a desire to do what I could to protect all the natural environment uh, that I saw around me and it also that sort of travel can remind you about inequalities in the world and how many people Mm. really do have uh, bigger problems than we face over here in Australia. So, this was a bit of an eye-opening experience, but it didn't stop there. We ended up going as far as we could by road, and then we started traveling by river deeper and deeper into the Amazon jungle. And experiences started to become more and more, uh, I guess, powerful and... We got quite deep into the jungle, really far away from human society and staying with indigenous people as well as other sort of people that facilitate tourists. Mm -hmm. But I had a series of really quite a powerful dreams at that stage in which I envisaged myself uh, making money as an investor. Mm. So essentially, I was dreaming about what I wanted for my future and I could see myself in a treehouse picking stocks and (laughs) and watching them go up. And basically, I'd, of course, heard of ethical investing at that stage because that was where my super was invested. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it was just obvious to me that the way that you would take the skill of investing and try to make sure that you didn't do too much harm. Would be to become a proponent for ethical investing, mm-hmm. thus encouraging capital to move into the exact activities that you would like to see happen. And also make the cost of capital for those activities that you do not want to happen higher. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, the problems in the world are driven by the fact that somebody has a profit motive to do something that harms somebody else. Mm. So, whilst there are certain activities that are harmful that I would still permit and I would still allow to be done, a big way you can minimize them is just to not have people profiting from those activities so that there'll still be a natural level of people doing it. But if they can't profit from it, there's less of an incentive for people to to do things like destroy jungles. Mm. And that's essentially um, the morality of ethical investing is an individual saying, I don't wish to profit from this activity. They may still be happy for that activity to occur. And... Many people want to do that and I want to facilitate those people to do that. Mm.
0: And so, this story, you know, you've had um, this epiphany or you think to yourself, you know, I want to be an investor. This was, like you said, early in your degree. So, you've continued on with that.
1: Yeah. So, when I got back from that trip, the first thing I did then was to open a brokerage account and buy shares in a company that I thought was a goer. (laughs) It just so happened that this was... In March 2009, so, <laughs> right. the, the shares immediately six-bagged and I and I was even more certain that my dream was the way to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would be.
0: So, okay. So, you've done this. Uh, you've made your first investment. Do you remember what the company was or? Yes, it's that? now
1: bankrupt. It's called Ceramic Fuel Cells.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> now bankrupt. Great. So, at least you 6 bag and you got out?
1: Uh, I sold some, but I think I just became a bag holder of that stock and ultimately- um i'm not sure how much money i made in it if any but it wasn't a lot and i yeah subsequently ended up selling the rest of my shares mm-hmm. at some exceedingly low price okay uh well at least you got out before it went bankrupt <laughs> yeah. um so you've you've graduated uni let's fast forward to that and where did you work what was your first job out of uni so there was a bit of a difficult transition as i had to let my dad know that I probably wasn't going to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. even though I'd done this law degree, which he'd supported me through. And so I briefly worked for a solar company. And then at the end of that period, I went back to South America and um, recharged my batteries, basically, to become an ethical investor. Mm-hmm. And then I joined uh, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he runs a boutique fund called Castle Ray. Equity Mm -hmm. and joined him essentially uh, to help him set up that small boutique fund. Because he's a lawyer as well, right? He's a lawyer as well. So this was a nice transitional step uh, because I could still do a little bit of legal work and I guess keep that door slightly ajar. Mm -hmm. But Peter's passion was um, certainly investing and that's where he really drove me to improve. For example, I think he demanded that I read every single one of Warren Buffett's (laughs) <laughs> letters in the space of one week at a certain point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, he was obviously that early mentor for you, you would say? Yeah, definitely. He really drove me to get my knowledge up to scratch and he also shared some pretty good theories uh, with me, although my investing style is really quite different from his. Okay. Uh, he. There's a lot of areas we agree on, for example, that there's much greater inefficiencies at the small end of the market mm. that... You know, Warren Buffett's teaching of uh, a business with good economics and honest and competent management is a, a basic starting point for investing and you know certainly looking at long-term history of companies' growth and return on equity. So, I really am grateful for everything he taught me at the beginning then.
0: Mm. So, you were there for a couple of years as far as I know? Uh, no. So, I think it was about a year. I oh, right. Beta. A year. Okay. And then uh, what prompted you to go outwards and, and look at a company like The Motley Fool Australia.
1: So, Mike King um, yep. convinced me to apply for a job with The Motley Fool mm-hmm. and I miss him a lot. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be a great move for me because at the time that I joined, uh, Joe was the director of research. Joe Mega, Yes. And he was really a good teacher himself in that he had the whole analyst team uh reading books such as the gorilla game and getting us to summarize them and debate what lessons we can get out of that and how we can use those lessons today he also took some like individual interests and would suggest sort of a certain course that uh Mm. he thought that i would benefit from and generally created an environment you know he shared his methods which Mm. is also a huge part of it um somebody sharing their spreadsheets with you showing you how they do it uh it was really a great opportunity to learn, and I am also exceedingly grateful to Joe for you know the efforts he went to to help me improve as an analyst. Mm,
0: for sure, I think that um, that was reflected where he was on the podcast recently, as you know, and some of the lessons he has, are, yeah, spectacular. And I can only imagine I'm envy envy you and and your um your ability just to look over his shoulder as he d- does what yeah. he does. So
1: a sign of my respect for Joe is and Peter actually is that I have um well, my family has some money with, with both of their funds. Mm-hmm. And you know, Joe in particular has performed very well. <laughs>
0: Great. Uh, okay, so you were at The Fool for a few years. Yeah, You worked your way up from being an analyst to investment advisor of a service called Hidden Gems where you focus on small companies. Uh, obviously, your bread and butter, small companies. I imagine you've touched on Joe. Were there any
1: other key learnings or lessons from that period in your career? Yeah, so um, running Hidden Gems was really great because it put pressure on me to come up with an idea sort of 12 times a year or initially it was once a month mm-hmm. I made the suggestion that that become 12 times a year so I could have a little more flexibility but the discipline of actually having to regularly come up with ideas I does work that muscle out now obviously there's some sub about having pressure to yeah. come up with an idea but on the other hand Practice makes perfect. And when you're forced to like come up with an idea every single month, you're basically practicing, you're practicing your stock picking. And having that out publicly, being challenged to beat the market, and then finally, strongly succeeding in beating the market mm. overall uh, was a really rewarding experience. Mm. And so I was really proud after two years. I think I signed off um, and my last words were essentially to draw attention to the fact that I'd made Promedicus a buy, a best buy now, more than any other stock, and that uh, you know it was still the bonus best buy now for that last month as well. <laughs> and um, people should remember that. And it was been gratifying to see that one double since then as well. <laughs>
0: Wonderful, mate. Well done. Let's jump from that to your own project, your own company, your own website, which is uh, Ethical Equities. So you started this quite a few years ago now. It had a hiatus there for a while, but uh, I guess it's back in full swing.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that uh, Simply Wall Street supports is for me to write on ethical equity, so we've brought that back to life. And we're sort of gradually growing that as well in a way that can, I hope, bring uh, value to readers. We've started very low-key experimenting, I guess, with uh, beta testing on how we could provide a paid service. So at the moment, we don't market it, but we've got supporters who can pay a small amount of money for so i guess you know enhanced mm-hmm. um interactions with ethical equities and we're trying to figure out how in a way that can scale easily we can provide a value to people that they'd be happy to pay for because at the moment um i lose a significant amount of money on ethical <laughs> equities every year so i feel um, it's not sustainable at this point but it's certainly a passion project that i hope can become sustainable one day okay Why don't we've
0: just Better around the bush a bit, why wouldn't we just be crystal clear about what it is and why it started?
1: Yeah, so it's a website that essentially just publishes ethical investing research. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a coverage of like any number of companies that any of our writers think deserve to be on the website. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, uh, there's no sort of set ethical framework of what can and cannot be written about on ethical equities. It's really just a space where you can publish or we publish... Stock research that has an awareness of the ethics. So what wouldn't be okay is to write about how there's, you know, this great investment opportunity, but but let's just say that company is kind of dodgy, like Thorn Group or something like that, and they do hurt people. To just ignore that aspect of it, that's not what a website like Ethical Equities would do because it has an awareness of that ethical standpoint. And, of course, if you look at something like Freedom Group, that awareness can sometimes pay. Mm. Uh, as well as just being uh, something that many readers increasingly are interested in.
0: Yeah, great. So, you started this 2013, 14, somewhere around now? That, right? um,
1: that, that, that sounds about right. 2013, I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's dig more into the ethics. Um, obviously, it's, you're incredibly passionate about it, which is wonderful. One of the things, and you just said that there's no set standard for ethics and there's no, you know, you, you allow the writers some discretion on the site. One of the things that people say when you bring up ethics in investing, they always say, who's ethics? And so, perhaps um, you can talk to, in more granular detail, how you go about um, excluding companies, how you might include companies, and I suppose from an investment process perspective, do you actively seek companies that are doing good by society, or do you just avoid companies that are doing bad?
1: There's a lot to unpack there. It's very long-winded, sorry. So, the answer to the question, whose ethics, is your ethics. You often see people try to, I guess, attack ethical investing by saying, you know, oh, you know, whose ethics is it after all? Not saying you're attacking it, but, Mm. um, you know, who's to say that Cochlear isn't a bad company because they make a profit out of helping people? Mm. Um, And I guess the answer is you. You should have a sufficiently... Uh, developed sense of ethics to be able to distinguish between cochlear and for example a, a company that sells poker machines mm-hmm. if you don't have an ethical code that helps you distinguish between those two companies you're going to struggle as an ethical investor because mm. that's not ethical investing that's deficient that's the person who is uh, writing unable to yeah exactly to so it's, it's up to you to like form your own ethics and And then the second part of the question, I guess, is how do I think about it? I guess the guiding principle for me is uh, don't invest in things that I think are hurting people. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is that I have a strong bias towards companies that are clearly creating value beyond monetary value. Okay. However, that is an ethos that is more likely to cost you money than just simply avoiding harmful activities. Avoiding harmful activities can quite often save you money. Mm. But avoiding activities that sort of don't really create that much value overall uh, doesn't always go so well. For example, that's one of the reasons I've always had a bit of a disaffinity for Afterpay, which has performed very well. Even though I've got nothing against it, I don't see it as forming like a really important thing in society. I think, Mm. you know, before Afterpay, everyone was fine. Mm. And if Afterpay disappeared tomorrow, everyone would be fine. In fact, a few people would be pleased not to be owing them money. Mm. Um, So... But whilst it's a very good business model, or at least appears to be, I yeah have a disaffinity with that kind of business. I'm not saying I'd avoid them completely, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly I've got a bias against companies that don't really help people.
0: How about on the uh, positive side here? How about companies that add value beyond what you see in the financials? Can you give us some more examples that people might know?
1: Yeah, so I guess probably the most illogical investment in my portfolio is Windlab which I think is a really cool business that has... What does it do? Uh, it basically has software that... It has a system and software that helps identify good places to build wind farms. And their way of monetizing this has been to sort of become wind farm developers. So they spot a good place to do it. They try to sign some agreements and get sort of the the project in its very early stages. And then they try to part with, partner it with or sell that project to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it has sort of very lumpy profits and a whole bunch of features that... Don't make it attractive to me as an investment, but I really like what it does. I think it's smart. Like it's better for everyone if we build wind farms at the places that it's most effective to do so, mm-hmm. and having technology that facilitates that is definitely good in my eyes. Mm-hmm. So I have a small amount of shares in that just because I really like love the impact that it's having.
0: Okay, and and you say would you say that that's costing you returns or?
1: Um, it's not cost. Well, it is. is opportunity so, it cost, is though? because, yeah, there's opportunity cost on that. Like, maybe I think it could still, I think it'll still generate positive returns, but and I think probably still market-beating returns, but is it my sort of best idea on its absolute own? And uh, maybe not quite.
0: Okay. Interesting. So Well, not is- maybe. It's definitely
1: not. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> this is a segue. This is a good segue into my next question, which is some people will throw at an ethical investor. They'll say you know, why would i invest ethically if it's going to cost me something like it's it it's cost me returns um and I, I i gave you a heads up on this because some people might cherry pick a company and they might say well tobacco stocks have been the best performing over the last 100 years hmm. and so what would your counterpoint to that be you know does it cost you to yeah be ethical
1: so there's a common refrain that is sort of a, a viewed by some as Powerful insight, which is that certain sin stocks do very well. So, tobacco companies are a classic example. Mm. If you had bought um, a tobacco company stock and just reinvested your dividends for many years, you would have got really great returns. The insight here is that, first of all, they've cher- like that is cherry picking an example of, I guess, what many people view as an unethical business that has done very well. There are plenty of unethical businesses that have done badly, and if you cherry pick, uh, ethical business you can get even better returns so if you bought amazon at the at three dollars or microsoft at the right price or even apple at a certain point in time you're gonna get absolutely fantastic returns so it's possible to get life-changing amazing returns without investing in tobacco stocks but then the second really interesting observation that i'd make there is part of the reason that tobacco stocks have done well is because they were the first companies to have against i guess an ethical discount to market one of the first targets of ethical Mm. investing was to avoid tobacco stocks. And that has meant that their share price has been a little bit lower than essentially where it should have been. And if you reinvest the dividends, it sort of compounds that discount over many years. Mm. So it's in part thanks to ethical investing that those stocks have done well. Mm. Now, what ethical investing has, has achieved regarding tobacco stocks is it has caused huge parts of society to divest, which meant that fewer and fewer people had an interest in growing tobacco profits, which has allowed many developed countries to then legislate against tobacco companies in a way that reduces the profits they get from developed countries and also increases the tax revenue that is then used, one would hope, to subsidize healthcare system to treat the damage that they're done that is done. Hmm. So, you know, the sale of cigarettes in Australia at this point is far less pro- pro- problematic than it was 30 years ago mm. and that's a great achievement and there's obviously a huge number of different moving parts that have gotten us to there but i would say this is that if you look at the places where there is no regulation against tobacco there is a correlation between those places and the list of the countries that are rated as having highest level of corruption uh, so if you are investing in tobacco companies, you're getting most of your profits from people who live under relatively corrupt governments. Uh, so that's one way to make a living, but it's something that many people for many years have preferred to avoid.
0: It's an interesting insight, second-order effects, if you like. You touched on something there where you said that tobacco stocks were the first that most investors started to exclude. And in my time researching, fund managers often they will have an ESG screen and tobacco stocks are the first on the list then you'd have armaments like cluster bombs and pornography and a few others that are on that list how like do you, do you how do you think about the the ability to quantitatively filter these companies out is that uh, is that too hard and fast or
1: no I mean I think it's extremely humane that people are just starting to filter out those kind of businesses mm-hmm I think if that becomes a sort of norm for society, we'll actually start to be bending capitalism more to make positive things. Because, as I've said, you know, the, the key here is to make it taboo to profit off certain things that you still might permit. Yeah. And, and so, I think it can be done more and more automatically. And I guess the exciting thing will be like looking forward 30 years, will it almost be just normal for your vanilla fund to screen out those things? Mm. And it would be considered the exception if you're a fund that does try to profit from those things. Mm.
0: I'd say from where I stand, that's more and more the case, I'd say, in the last few years.
1: Uh, look, I've, I've spoken to many people who run money who almost they've never stated it. They've never promised their investors anything. But they have a de facto screen against those things anyway, Mm. because they just have no enthusiasm to get to know, to study, to own those companies.
0: It's an interesting point because I've often heard ethical investing characterised as just a a push up the quality spectrum. So we have companies like, as a long-term investor, or as long-term investors, you and I both look for companies that have sustainable advantages or just sustainable business models in the first instance. So. I wonder, you know, just are we pushing further up the quality spectrum? Is that is that a right characterization, I guess, of ethical investing?
1: I mean, I'll definitely love that argument because I think that it helps encourage people to ethically invest. It's not quite the same. In, in reality, there's like a huge overlap between those two activities that mm. is pushing your portfolio up the quality spectrum and trying to invest ethically. But there are definitely going to be times when it doesn't match up. Yeah. And also, uh, the other complicating factor is people might have different ideas about what is and what is not ethical. I think that the real goal here is to actually have people considering that Mm. and you're going to get a much better net result for society if people are thinking about that than if they're not.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, circling back to the, I suppose, the quantitative approach, we've seen a few, um, I believe there's more than one ETF now in Australia, or at least there's more than one listed fund here in Australia that has an ethical tilt. Or an ethical bias. Can you see ethical investing via ETFs, for example, becoming more and more popular? I imagine. Yeah, I think US? I mean
1: it is becoming more and po- more and more popular, and I think it's going to be huge. So I think the most important actors in Australia for getting more and more assets behind ethical investing have been Australian Ethical, the Superfund, mm-hmm. and also now beta shares who have created two ethical ETFs. Um, ASX Ethy and ASX Fair, which essentially are quite good, thorough ethical screens on Australian stocks and uh, global stocks, respectively. And what that does is at low cost gives someone the ability to invest in essentially an, a very broad ethical index that is sufficiently mm. large to still get the effect of removing single company risk. But sufficiently small to have like truly avoided a lot of companies that many different people might object to.
0: Mm. It's interesting you, you bring up those names. Is there when you were forming these views about ethical investing, were there any other fund managers, or are there any other fund managers or companies that you look to and and think they have some quality resources that others might benefit from?
1: I guess the ones I've mentioned, I think, solve most of the problems for most people. Uh, it's important that more and more actors come in because it should create competition and keep fees low. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Australian Ethical has been incentivized to continue to lower its fees over the years, in part because there are more and more competitors. One thing that I would be very wary of is, I guess, you sort of Johnny come lately, mm. people that are just trying to like launch a fund to cash in on the theme of ethical investing. Some organizations have ethical investing prov- proponents within them, very serious about doing the right thing that is the desire and then the ability to make money off that is what makes it sustainable other people come to it like we want to make money we need an idea all right Mm. you know we've done dividend stocks why don't we do ethical stocks and then they come at it from that angle and i think that that is then characterized by very poorly articulated values and screens and essentially it's trying to put a round peg through a sort of square hole in that whoever the manager is has also no affinity for ethical investing they'd quite happily be buying tobacco stocks but you know they they can't in this strategy because you know it's an ethical strategy so i don't think it is optimal to invest in sort of the ethical option for a company that is not a proponent of ethical investing okay
0: i wonder though it's probably easier for you and i but i wonder how we could distinguish between the, the genuine ethical managers and then those that are the Johnny Come Latelys.
1: Well, yeah, we'll definitely continue to cover that t- topic on ethical equities. So, <laughs> ethical equities will always have information about where the good ethical investments are available. But on top of that, it's like really quite simple. A company that is serious about ethical investing will have very prominent, detailed discussion about what they do and they do not invest in. Mm-hmm. A company that is not serious will have, you know, the ethical fund hidden away in some corner that they like, you know, roll out when they haven't been able to sell the other ones.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good point. Okay. So, let's talk more about your investment process.
1: Cool. Yeah. Exciting.
0: (laughs) Why small caps, mate?
1: Well, um, as I mentioned before, I basically think small caps are where you get greater pricing inefficiencies and because they're smaller companies, they often have more room to grow. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, than, than a larger company would.
0: Why do you think there are pricing inefficiencies in small cap end of the market? Well,
1: our financial system is characterized by relatively few people who control extremely large amounts of money. Mm-hmm. But when you have an organization that has you know billions under management, looking at a company with a market cap of 40 million, of which they may, if they're lucky, be able to buy 2 million within a couple of months, uh, is not a good use of time for them because it's not going to solve their problem of how to best allocate capital in any meaningful way because it's just too small for them. So, essentially, that removes this huge amount of money. And in a market, it's not kept efficient by the number of individuals that think of a certain thing. It, the votes are with how much money you have. So, mm. you move some very powerful voters and therefore, uh, basically, you have... a. You don't have the required amount of money going in and out of a stock to keep it anywhere near efficient.
0: Okay. Um, when people think about small caps, obviously, risk gets brought up. I've noticed from your investing over time that you tend to focus on healthcare and technology industries. The intersection of those are pretty exciting, it looks mm-hmm. like. How do you go about filtering the companies that you're not interested in, you know, the junk, yeah. small cap, promotional managers, etc.
1: So, within the small caps on the ASX, I'm very much, uh, you know, this is a Peter Pan hungover, like, look at them A to Z kind of thing. Okay. The only major filter I do is to filter out um, fossil fuels. And I also, as a result of that, haven't developed any sort of expertise around um, other resources that I might be interested in. So, I generally won't look at them either because I consider it outside my circle of competence. Okay. But everything else I will look at.
0: Okay. Interesting. And I I gave you a heads up on this one too, but how do you think about risk? I'm guessing it's not volatility.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely not volatility. There are a number of great quotes that I've been incorporating into my latest template about how uh, volatility is not risk. Risk is uh, the permanent loss of capital. This is sort of clearly comes from the best authorities we have in investing. Warren Buffett has said that. Lee Liu, who's like the only fund manager that Charlie Munger has invested with externally, has also said that Hmm. the way that people should be thinking about risk as investors is about permanent loss of capital. So, it's extremely confusing to me why people are taught something different at university. Since I did a law degree, I was never taught that. So, I certainly think about it as permanent loss of capital. However, it's worth noting that with small companies, your actual loss, not only is there high volatility, but also your permanent loss of capital risk is usually greater because... Essentially, they may have different. The small company may be exposed to, I guess, a fewer number of factors, and that can mean that its business can change relatively significantly in a relatively quick period of time. Mm
0: -hmm. So, would you say that um, your batting average is quite low? But you're, in terms of your your slogging average, it's you know you're, you're looking for multi baggers, or
1: yeah. So, I don't think my. It's been a while since I checked that. Certainly, as advisor, when I was coming up with one idea a month, my batting average wasn't low uh in my portfolio it would be a bit lower because i buy more high risk positions Mm -hmm. but i still think my actual success like profit or loss rate on any given position is still pretty good and that's because essentially in a bull market if you're buying something that's absolute trash and then you realize that it's a bad investment you still sometimes sell and make money anyway Mm -hmm. as long as you're willing to actually realize that it's a bad investment Mm -hmm. but absolutely what has driven my returns uh, which I meant to look up on what they were, but essentially well over 30% a year is because I've had a lot of money in Pro Medicus and a f- and a few other sort of successful stocks like Ordinate and Nearmap. Yeah. So if you just manage to be reasonably concentrated in a big winner, then that just makes a huge difference. Yeah, right. So let's
0: talk about position sizing then because I know you've talked about this before, um, Three Wise Monkeys podcast you're quite comfortable holding companies for a long time if you've still got conviction and also the position sizes can get pretty extreme, right? How do you think about risk from a portfolio level?
1: I don't really. Okay. It's a simple answer. I realize that some people really do manage their portfolio and there's a lot of great theories you can Mm -hmm. do with that. But the only thing that I worry about is whether I have match-up between my position size and my conviction. So, I should have large positions in those companies that i have a lot of conviction Mm -hmm. and the ones that i'm still more tentative about and trying to get to know um actually one of my friends and mentors who also runs a fund that i'm invested in steve mccarthy he taught me a really valuable lesson which is that the way to get an advantage in small cap investing in, in australia is to follow a company for a long period of time and i really do believe this is irreplaceable insight if you have read all of the quarterlies and all of the results of a certain small company for a few years and you're in the micro-cap or small-cap space. You may be one of only a handful of people who actually have that knowledge. Mm. So, then when that company puts out a bit of information, you're able to synthesize it and understand it quicker than almost everyone and the people that could potentially do it as quickly as you – there may only be a handful of them. They might not be at the c- computer when that information comes out or they might already have built a position they want or whatever. Mm. So, you can be the guy that is literally just buying some small cap stock. A good example is uh, of this for me recently was AERIS, um, ASX AER, which is this tiny micro cap which I've followed for, for years because it was essentially the smallest software company that seemed reasonable on the ASX. Mm-hmm. And I was on holiday... In Billingen And I just happened to see, you know, it's quarterly come out, which I was waiting for the quarter. I already owned shares, but I was wanting to see certain things. And I saw that, that quarterly come out. I bought shares on the open at 6.4 cents. You know, there weren't many shares available, mm-hmm. but still I bought some. And, you know, that's already like a week later, that was 11 cents or 12 cents as the market just quickly digested that information. But it took a few days.
0: Mm, okay. So, I'm curious to know then uh, if... You don't think necessarily, other than conviction, lining up with position sizing. I'm interested to know how you think about selling and whether intrinsic value and, you know, your valuations play a big
1: role in that. Yeah. So, they do play a massive role in it. That'd probably be the second factor besides long-term conviction that I consider. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that I feel like selling a company that I think is good quality but overvalued has probably not been, at this stage, much of an advantage for me Mm -hmm. there are some times when i've played it pretty perfectly and i've sold the stock when it was overvalued and it hasn't done too well after that but there are also a couple of times such as near map where i've done evaluation found that i thought it was overvalued and then sold and it's been very costly um, in terms of the fact that that stock has continued to perform well Mm -hmm. so i think that it's worth remembering that any single time you do evaluation you could be wrong even if you were right in the past you could still be wrong So, you should be pretty careful about acting all of a sudden on a valuation you've done in case you're wrong.
0: Okay. That that makes sense. I think, you know, one of the things that I think we've got a bit of overlap in terms of our philosophy and focusing on high quality companies, companies that don't necessarily do wrong by the world. So, would you describe yourself then as more of like a, a growth investor or?
1: When it comes down to it, I think that it's just all value investing. Yep. So, if if someone was like, Claude, you have to choose a camp, value or growth, I'd say growth, but really, I just think it's all value investing. Mm.
0: I think Joe made a good point when he was on the show. He said uh, that companies can grow into valuations as well and that's something people underestimate.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, and honestly, uh, Joe has been one of the influences there. I think I was probably a little bit more value focused initially uh, because I guess everybody likes the comfort of a clear number, Mm. Uh, but ultimately, I've been willing to train myself to live in a bit of uncertainty mm. and be comfortable with uncertainty around valuation in order to try to maximize my returns, which I think the biggest, the biggest key is just uh, holding on to those stocks that have the ability to compound mm. um, within the business so they can keep growing mm. without needing any more capital for a very long period of time.
0: Mm. You spend a lot of time thinking, researching, reading about companies I'm interested to know how you do all that with like how do you allocate your time? Because you're a full time employee, you've you've got your own website and project, got a young family. Mm. How do you, where do you find time to fit all this in? Uh, nighttime,
1: essentially. I'm right. a I have always been a night owl. Okay. And so Are you it, one of
0: those people that survive on like four hours of sleep or something like that?
1: Uh, no, I need at least sort of six hours of sleep. Okay. But I think that, you know, I have sort of some quite productive hours at night when everyone's asleep. And uh, sometimes, you know, on a Saturday night, I'll be, you know, listening Mm. to music, dancing around, doing something investing related in my own living room. So, I have a lot of fun uh, doing that kind of work. So, that's what keeps me going on there.
0: Yeah, right. Because I'd say the majority of people that listen to this podcast are people that are DIY investors. They may have a full-time, full-time gig and they, they invest, um, you know, they're five to nine if you like. You tr- travel to Melbourne for AGMs. You, you speak with management. Uh, would you say what you do is a viable strategy for most people that are DIY investors at small cap end, you know, committing time? Is it really yeah, worthwhile so or should they just index?
1: Uh, so, the real – so, first of all, I definitely think it's worthwhile. You can do it with way less time than I put into it. And then second of all, the secret sauce is sharing and building networks. Mm-hmm. And so, I sh- there's way too many people to uh, mention, but I have a great group of friends who are in very regular email contact with me discussing various stocks, mm. sharing research. They know who they are and they know I appreciate them. And basically, one of the huge factors that I love about ethical equities is by having that out there, it has served as a way of like attracting natural allies. So, I want ethical investors to do well and people have found value in that work and then I get a constant stream of incoming goodwill mm. from people who bring me genuine value. And so, I probably should have mentioned this before. It's not a matter of me grinding out hours and hours of work. It's a matter of the people that help me being high-quality analysts themselves, some of them professional, some of them just with a passion for it. And, of course, I've got the gentleman and Matt Brazier helping me with ethical equity. So, I've got a great brains trust that is constantly helping getting all this stuff done. And so, what I'd say for the retail investor at home who doesn't have heaps of time for it is find a couple of stocks that you think are good and get to know even just three really well and then share that knowledge with other people. And if one of those stocks, if you end up influencing other people in a way that's helpful to them, oftentimes you will get that back in spades. Mm. Yeah, and
0: that's a point you've pressed on me is that uh, that goodwill carries on and often for years. Okay, as we come to the end of the conversation, I just want to put it out there. How can people get in contact with you or find out more about ethical equities?
1: Cool. So, yeah, if you just Google ethical equities, you'll find the website where we put our, our favorite research about asx stocks and you can find all my contact details there as well you're on twitter as well right yep so i have a twitter account which is more just short missives (laughs) okay
0: that's good it's good value i can just uh clock on every day and to see what you're up to and uh, get my finger on the pulse of the market at least a small cap end yeah thanks mate um okay so one of the books that you mentioned on your site is the little book that beats the market i'm always interested to know if there's any books that have or resources just more broadly that have influenced you or continue to influence you
1: yeah i'm really happy to take that question and i've got something that's a little bit outside of the box uh there's a lot of great books that many of your guests have mentioned and i agree with all of those suggestions but one that has influenced me a lot in my thinking about life is called collapse Mm. by jared diamond so okay never heard of um, it. that's a yeah that's a that's a book about how civilizations collapse and that definitely informs my view of the world and, and what drives me.
0: And the bigger picture, I imagine, somehow linked to ethical investing? Or Yeah,
1: so, it talks a lot about uh, complexity, flexibility, adaptability. Uh, you're Essentially, what you're looking for in life is adaptability. Things that are adaptable last longer in investing. Things that last longer do better. Hmm. So, uh, there's a lot there but... This I guess ties in with what I think is the best investing book of all time, which is uh, *The Last Liberal Art*. Mm. And the key insight there is that you're capable of using a lattice work of frameworks, mm. essentially. And then I would go to collapse as providing a framework that not many people are using, but can be quite useful. Mm. Wonderful.
0: Okay, great books. We'll link to them in the show notes. Last question, Cord. Uh, if you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about money or investing, or if you could tell your kids in a few years one thing about money or investing, what would it be?
1: I think just uh, get get started as early as possible. I, I was lucky to start early. Um, I guess um, the the other thing would be I, I should have bought Promedicus at uh, forty <laughs> cents instead of eighty something. <laughs> okay, mate. wonderful advice. Thanks for uh, joining me on the show. Cool, thanks, mate.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing.